Church, if you have your Bibles, please turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, today, I want to talk and teach a little bit on the Holy Spirit's role in making us like Jesus. And what the Bible talks about is sanctification. That's like the biblical theological word for it. And I want to bring back up something that we introduced to you two years ago, and that is the triangle of transformation. Um, and, and to do all of this, we're going to be starting a new vision series. Um, we typically do our vision series uh, in January. That's why we're calling this Revision. And the subtitle is Transformation Through the Worst Year in Modern History. So I'll let that sit for a moment. And everyone said, amen. And that is kind of hyperbolic, but that's really what we're calling this because it feels like this, right? Like how, how, how not only how do we live through like this, this, this year, but how is God transforming us and how do we participate in the transformation that God is going to bring? So we're trying to like kind of posture our fall to get a little bit more active, a little more involved um, with our with our lives, with our body, and as we'll talk about with our communities um, and for the remainder of the year. Like how do we just actually get involved in what God is doing. So that's what we'll be doing together. So would you stand with me as we read uh, God's word together? And I'd like you today to do this, read it out loud with me. I'm going to read from Second Peter. It's just a beautiful passage of scripture. I'm not going to exposit it today. Today will be more of a more of like a vision teaching, not an expository uh, teaching, like kind of like last week. Um, but I want to read this over us, and I want you to just actually recite it out loud alongside of us. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 11. Stan, let's read this together. It's on the screen for you, or if you have a Bible. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And, if, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this, um, this morning. I thank you for the gift of even technology that we're able to uh, virtually gather in this digital uh, diaspora that we find ourselves in. Um, would you supernaturally connect us together as a church? Do that by your spirit. Encourage us, build us up, and even in some ways, challenge us. Um, I submit my mind and heart to you and pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Today, um, like I said, what I like to do is I like to start a revision series. Uh, we typically do our vision series uh, every January. 
But we as elders and our staff uh, think it's good by way of reminder. I just love uh, Paul the Apostle when he would write to the church, he would say, I, I want to, rem- to-, to remind you of the things I've told you is not burdensome to me. It's actually good for you. Uh, Peter did the same thing to-, to when he was writing to the church. He said, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. We think it's really good to continue to remind you, church, of the things that we've said as elders to you, as pastors to you, things that we've encouraged you to do and to step into. And we want it to revision our year by way of reminder to stir you up, to um, keep you from stumbling, to keep you from living a life that's ineffective during this time, uh, during this like crazy pandemic. And the reason, one of the other reasons why we're doing this, we don't want you to lose sight of who you are and who we are as a church. And I say as a church, because we are still a church. Even though we can't see one another, even though some of us went back down south to be closer to family, and by down south, I mean the south and Southern California, wherever you went, we now live in this digital diaspora, but we are nevertheless the same church with the same vision, calling you and I to the same thing. And as such, I want to put back into focus the vision that we've been laying out as a church for the past couple of years. And it's centered around this idea that you and I can change. We can change. We can transform to be the kind of people of whom Jesus said he was making when he said, behold, I make all things new. We can become the kind of people who are less anxious, more joyful, less lust-filled, more patient, less outraged, and more kind. That is possible. That's what Jesus invites his followers into. But the problem that I've been pointing out to you for the last couple of years is the way that we typically do this um, in Christian life doesn't really make this kind of uh, this this kind of thing a real possibility. We say this is possible, but the way that we actually live our Christian lives doesn't make it very possible. Two years ago, I I told you that one of the the things that has frustrated me about the contemporary Protestant evangelical church is that it lacks a clear theory of personal transformation that is codified in practices that are easily accessible to those who want to be transformed. In other words, we lack a way of like, I want to grow to become like Christ. How do I do that? And the church by and large has lacked a vision for that. And the typically the process of transformation in churches, kind of everywhere, Im, implicitly at least, sometimes explicitly, but implicitly is this. If someone asks, how do I change to become like Christ? The, the, the way that most churches have answered it, even our church at times have answered it is this, believe the gospel and then go to church. That's basically how what we're talking, like believe the gospel, believe in Jesus, and then go to church. And then that's kind of how you're transformed. You go to church and the church will kind of do everything for you. And what we said, and what I said to you a couple of years ago, is that that's not powerful enough. To make, that's not powerful. The church as an event or church as a thing is not powerful enough to make disciples of Jesus who live in the way of Jesus, in, in the way that Jesus would call us to live. It takes way more than that, than, than, a, than a church event. I, and I said this to you, Two years ago, I said, that isn't, doesn't, doesn't work. Even though we love our Sunday gatherings, even though we love the, the gathered church, and it's a beautiful thing, we cannot wait to get back there, but it doesn't have the power to do it. And then we said, 
We need more. And that more that we were calling our church into is something that we called a theory, our theory, our working theory of change, if you remember. To illustrate this theory of change, we use this thing that we call the triangle of transformation. Here it is on the screen again. We said that we believe people are transformed in the Christ-likeness through these four ways, these four things that you enter into. The first is truth, like learning and learning the truth of Jesus, learning uh, the teachings of scripture, learning the, the reality as it is, learning truth. So you have to sit under the truth of Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um, and the next thing that we need is, the, is community. We need godly community that models uh, Christ to us, that we can practice forgiving one another and loving one another and serving one another. We need this kind of community. And we said we also need practices. We need to practice the way of Jesus. We, Jesus taught us how like to pray and to fast, um, how, how to give, how to serve. Like he taught us these things and we're supposed to practice them. But this is all held together in the heart of it, the very center of it is the power of the spirit. And we said this, I think it was a good sermon. I mean, go back and look it up. It's called Change is Possible. And I, and, and I, and I really believe in this, in, in this theory. But here's the thing. You have, there are two approaches on transformation that I just talked about. One of the approaches is believe the gospel and go to church. And the other one is this like triangle of transformation where there's a, a, like a web of, of practices and, and um, disciplines and ways to, to, like, to participate in transformation. Okay, these are the two ways. It's 2020. We're in the middle of a global pandemic and we can't go to church like the way that we went to church before, meaning the most popular approach to transformation has been taken from the church. The thing that we're most habituated towards to get our transformation is removed from us. And my question is this, how are you doing? How are you doing? How's that transformation into Christ-likeness thing going for you? I've asked a lot of you this question, and the overwhelming answer is not that great. In a lot of ways, I would say the very same thing about my life. It's not going that great. I want to stop here for a second. Just stop here. Hold that. Hold that, what I just said here. And let's fast forward to this January. So that was two years ago. So this January, the beginning of this year. We said that this was the year of renewal. That's what we said. And I, and I, and I kind of laugh at that now, right? It's so funny that beginning of the year, we're like, this is the year that God is gonna bring renewal. Jesus' kingdom is one of renewal. He's always renewing. And now I, I said that, we said that, we all like kind of like, that was the banner. We literally had banners over our church at Everett, like the year of renewal. And I laugh now because it doesn't feel like the year of renewal. It feels like the year of ruin. I mean, if I called it the year of ruin, I would have been so prophetic, but I did. I said renewal. Like this doesn't feel, this feels like crisis, not abundance, right? Now, but here's a question that I've been, I actually been asking myself since um, this summer on my break. But what if this actually was the year of renewal? What if this is the year of renewal? What if this was the year that the things that we were habituated towards and the things that we were reliant upon for our transformation to becoming like Christ are broken and have to be renewed? This dawned on me on a walk in the woods recently. What if this really was the year of renewal? But the renewal that God brings always follows crisis. And when you read uh, the Old Testament, especially immersing yourself in the Old Testament, there's times of ruin and right after ruin, there's renewal. 
there's crisis, and then there's renewal. And it got me thinking, what if this was the season where we could really teach our church to live into the rhythms of this triangle? What if this was the year that we really felt like we could actually try to move our church in a way of becoming like Christ and feel connected as a church around this that wasn't as dependent on the Sunday gathering, though the Sunday gathering is incredible and I cannot wait to be with you again in person soon. But what if this? What if we just missed a whole opportunity to rebuild our our the, rebuild our church around this idea? Like this is what our church said two years ago. What if this was the opportunity, the renewal that God was bringing in for us to go? Church, give yourselves to this. Now, like I said, we'll worship again soon. But I want us. What I want to invite us into this fall is to learn, or at least try, attempt to learn this new way of being. That was a long way around to say this. I want to lead us in a series, a revisioning series of what it looks like to follow Jesus in renewal. A revision of what it looks like to be part of Reality San Francisco. A revision of what it looks like to be, looks like to be, um, to place ourselves in the way of transformation into Christ-likeness, to participate in it. So what I'll do for the next several weeks is I'll teach through this triangle. Uh, uh, next week, I'm gonna teach a series on how to live and do community in COVID and be introducing you guys you guys and gals to some new like practices that we'll be entering into. So the, the, the importance, I think we're seeing now more than ever, the importance of community that is not Zoom, but in real life community. What does that look like? Talk about that next week. And then I'll do a teaching on practices. I'll, I'll be introducing our church into... Uh, a collective rule of life for our church that we'll be living into for the rest of the year. We'll also talk about how we commit ourselves to truth in an election year where the news that comes at us is all sorts of different sorts of craziness. And they've, they, they're, they're just a story wars going on. Like people are trying to win the story and Jesus has a story that's truer and better than any story. And how do we as a church live into that? So we'll be doing some teachings around that. But today I want to start with what's inside this triangle and what's outside this triangle. Let, let me explain what I mean. So this triangle, if you, if you, if you remember, it's, put, it's back up on the screen. Um, the points of this triangle is for, for all intents and purposes, the points of this triangle are your controllables. It's what you can control. It's what you have in your power to do. Meaning, you have in your power to, to give yourself to God's truth. You have within you the power to live into robust biblical community. You have within you the power to practice and habituate yourselves towards the way of Jesus. That's what we can do. Like That's our participation. But the two things that are kind of outside of our control is what I want to talk about today. That's what's inside the triangle and what's outside the triangle. The inside of this triangle is the spirit. The spirit we don't control. We did a teaching, a series on this. We don't control, the, the spirit is God. And he lives inside of this. I'm gonna get into that in a second. But the thing that we actually might be new to this whole teaching on the triangle transformation is what lies outside the triangle, and that is life. You and I don't control what often happens in life circumstances. And what I mean by that is COVID, your job, 
election year, news, race explosion and fighting and money and dating. Is dating a thing in COVID? I have no idea. Homeschooling, what? Who thought you would be teachers? At, where you live now, what, do we live in the city? Do we move out now? Like all those things you kind of have almost zero control over and they kind of just sometimes happen to you and to me. I want to talk about the spirit of God inside the triangle and what God is doing and then life and how that presses in on our transformation. Things that come at us that are outside of our control a lot of the times. And the Holy Spirit who lives in us, who's a person, who's the third person of the Trinity, who has a mind of his own is, and is up to a will of his own that is not your will often. He lives in us, the, the, the scriptures say. So let's talk about each of these and how they play into our transformation. What's inside the triangle, what's outside. First, let's talk about what's inside the triangle, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, when we respond to Jesus by faith, when we choose to repent and follow Jesus, we are told that our sins are washed away and then that Jesus redeems us all by Christ's work. We don't have any part in that. He does it himself. He redeems us fully, completely, regenerates us, makes us new. That's what he's done by his work, his sacrificial work on the cross and in the resurrection. And as a part of that reality, what also comes in this like package deal of becoming a follower of Jesus, of becoming a believer in Christ, becoming a Christian, is that our, our lives or actually our physical bodies become a space a space where God himself dwells. This might be new information to some of you. If you're new to, to the Christian faith, I know there's several of you that uh, have been um, new to faith since, since COVID as a part of our church. So this might be new, but what happens is your, your body becomes a place where God lives. Then the language of the Bible, it's that you and I become a temple of the Holy Spirit, a temple. I mean, trip out on that. A temple, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. It goes on to say, you were bought with the price. What Jesus redeeming our lives means that we have become a, a habitat for divinity. Like we, we the, 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 the divine, the spirit of the living God lives in us. Now, this is always where the Bible was going. At the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, God dwells in a garden with Adam and Eve, and he just lives among them. And then after the fall, God still goes after humanity, and he dwells in a tent in the wilderness when the children of Israel are, are uh, on in the exodus, and he's dwelling because he wants to live among them. And then eventually he dwells permanently in a temple in Israel and Jerusalem. And then in the time of Jesus, it says that God tabernacled among us in Jesus. So Jesus became the place where God dwells. And then when Christ was was crucified and died and then resurrected, he released him and the Father, released the Spirit so that God now lives in us. That's the progression of the story. It was always going this way. This is what God always had in mind. God wants to live with us and even in us. And now that we're Christian, we're followers of Jesus, we've been regenerated, renewed, 
given new life in Christ, the function of the spirit that lives in us is first to move within our mind and in our soul to present the person of Jesus and the reality of the kingdom of God to us. That's the Holy Spirit's main role in our life is to continue to present Jesus and the way of the kingdom to us all the time. That's what the Spirit is doing. He does that through conviction, convincing, truth, your circumstances, all of that. Now, when Jesus, don't don't tune out here because I think I'm going to read some scripture here. Don't tune out because I think this is so, so important. When Jesus was giving the, his discourse on the Holy Spirit at the end of the book of John, he's giving his discourse on the Holy Spirit and his work and the disciples like post-life, post-Jesus physically being there. He said, I'm going to give you the Spirit. And this is what Jesus said about the Spirit. Uh, John 15, 26, when the advocate comes, that's what he calls the Spirit whom I send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. This is what the spirit does. He, 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 the spirit lives in us and he testifies of Jesus. He, he brings Jesus to mind. He brings the way of Jesus to mind. This is what the spirit loves to do. And he, Jesus goes on to explain in the next a few verses down in chapter 16. I have, Jesus says, I have much more to say to you about this subject, more than you can even now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will only speak what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. You see what the spirit's role is here. Spirit lives in us and he takes the words of Jesus and the way of Jesus and his kingdom and he applies it to us. This is what the spirit does. He's bearing witness to the truth always. That's why when you live in ways that are like wrong, sinful, many of us who are Christian will feel this guilt, maybe even shame. Now, I have to stop there because the Holy Spirit doesn't bring you shame or bring you guilt. He bears witness to the truth in our lives. And we ourselves feel like, it's like when we we know we're wrong, we feel that like, that like oh, I'm wrong. I did wrong. The Spirit bears witness to the truth. He doesn't make us feel bad. He just bears witness to the truth. So that feeling inside of you is your spirit and God's spirit almost contesting. That's what's kind of going on. That's what the Spirit does. So if you've ever done something and felt like, ah, oh, that was wrong, it's because the Spirit says, this is what's true. This is the way of Jesus. And it's up to us to then now repent and go, you're right. Repenting is just agreeing with God. You're right. That was wrong. You are right. This is true. I want to live in that way. And the more and more we ignore the Spirit, the Bible says that it's um, quenching the Spirit or even grieving the Spirit, which is why if you continue to do it over and over and over again, you just like deaden the voice of the spirit in your life. Okay, so this is the point of like the spirit living in us, right? It li- the spirit lives in us, testifies of the truth. Now the biblical theological word for the, for the, the process in which the spirit do- like makes the realities of God's kingdom and his truth make it make sense to us or to make us align to it in our in our like character formation in our lives is called the biblical word for it theological word is the the word sanctification okay now i know for many of you that grew up in the church this word is like yeah i know what that word means sanctification don't really use it that that often but i know what that word means sanctification is taken it's a it's taken from uh two latin words one 
holy, and the other one to work, right? So sanctification is, the, is uh, to work holiness in us or the work of holiness. It's a status given to a believer and it's a process which continues to be done in the believer. Both, both are true. true. It's a status meaning you are holy if you're a follower of Jesus and it's a process you are being made holy. Now those are in contradiction. They're both a part of the scriptures. The spirit of God in us makes us holy holy, makes us set apart, sets us apart, says you are now in Christ, and then is the process of we become who we are, is the language of like the New Testament. Okay, so a couple quotes here. The first, Jonathan Edwards, Puritan theologian philosopher, he said this, sanctification is the beauty of the Holy Spirit becoming the perfecting beauty of our humanity too. So it's like our humanity and the beautiful spirit, spirit is in our lives to beautify our humanity, like to bring it back to its like created order. That's the work of the spirit, which is created to be indwelt by the spirit, Holy Spirit, meaning we were created for the spirit to live in us. The Holy Spirit as divine love activates our holy affections of love to God without which we are incomplete. So the Holy Spirit comes in our lives and, and, come and lives in us and he activates like holy affections of where we wanna love God. We wanna do God to what we want to. Uh, Romans 8 talks about like how sometimes that's really difficult and we don't do what we wanna do, but we'll get there in a second. Millard Eckerson says this, another theologian says, the spirit is at work in the believer bringing about the likeness of Christ. This is what the spirit does. Now, so when we look at the triangle transformation, what the Spirit does in, in transforming us so our character is the character of Christ, the Spirit does this over and over again inside of us internally. He's making us like Christ. Simon Ponsby, another theologian, says, over 90 times in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is called holy. After conversion, our holiness is his major role. Okay, so Holy Spirit, his role is holiness. Holy Spirit's role in our life is to make us holy or to make us like Jesus, okay? That's the, that's the role of the Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit, whom you have living within you if you're a believer in Christ, is at work within you right now, making you more like Christ. The Spirit is making you more holy, making you more who you already are in Christ. This is true, and I want you, by way of reminder, I want to speak that truth to you, church, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. The Holy Spirit lives in you and is at work in you. He is at work in you. The Spirit of the living God is at work in you. And like my, with my daughter, Juniper, who is like, just got measured and is like 99 percentile in height, She's really tall, but I, I don't, I know she's grown, but I don't really see her grow. Like every, I don't see her growing, but I know she's growing because she's literally growing. That's very similar to God's work. You might not see it happen, but it's, it, it's, it happens in you. It's a subtle work where it feels like sometimes steps forward and then steps backward. God is at work. He's at work sometimes in, in his silence. He's at work in, in, in sometimes in, in our frustration. He's at work in our failure even. God is at work growing you into Christ-likeness. Now, that's true. 
And I want you to hear that. That is true. That's what God's doing if you're a follower of Jesus. At the same time, that has to be balanced with another truth. And it's this. God doesn't do all the work. You need to hear that. I know that doesn't preach. Like, you probably won't say amen to that. But God doesn't do all the work. Meaning, you're not passive in this process. You're not like a robot who gets reprogrammed once you become a follower of Jesus and all of your old patterns just go away all of a sudden. That is not how it happens to 99.9% of people. I mean, I have heard it happen to like maybe one person in my life. Like I became a Christian and all of my old habits just fell away. And I, and they, that's what they said anyway. And I don't, I won't press in any further than that. Like if they said it, fine. But for the majority of us, that's not true. Just like God won't teach you Spanish by you praying or grow your biceps by Bible memory, he won't do that. Like you have to put in the work. Like I want to learn Spanish. You don't know, like, God, I want to learn Spanish. I mean, that might happen. You're like, well, isn't that the gift of tongues? Kind of, but not really. That kind of doesn't really happen. Like you don't just like walk up like, I know this, unless God like endows you with that. But Typically, you have to learn it. Now, can God be part of the learning? Sure, yes, oftentimes, yes. God doesn't, you don't go, God, I want my biceps to be stronger, and you wake up with like Spider-Man the next day, like all of a sudden, all these muscles, like that, that's not how God works. You have to put in the work as well. God calls you to participation in your own sanctification. That's just true. The Holy Spirit works with two other agents to bring about your sanctification. Again, image of the triangle. I'm gonna I want this seared in your mind, right? They are the 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 two things, the two ways the Holy Spirit um, uses or the two other agents the Holy Spirit uses to bring about your sanctification are your work and your hardships. They're both a part of what the Holy Spirit is up to. Your work is it, kind of speaks to the three things that we'll talk about in the next few weeks. It talks about your practices of of repentance and 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 your practices of prayer and fasting and like and your community and the way that you've given yourself to community and truth and the way you've given yourself to the study of scripture and all that stuff like that's god god uses your work this is like paul says work out your salvation with fear and trembling that's the that's the part of uh, make every effort in 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 uh first peter as we were at the very beginning this is like your work and we'll speak to that in a second but i, I want to zero in on your hardships. The Holy Spirit uses hardships in our life to bring about our transformation. If you weren't taught that, I'm sorry, I thought I've done a few teachings on this in the past, but I think it's apropos that we bring it up again because we're all living through, to various degrees, pretty intense hardships right now. The Holy Spirit is at work in your hardships. There's no other there's also there's no other way around kind of this way that God works. Um, the Bible calls this hardships, afflictions, trials, temptations, tests and tribulations. I say tribulations. Trials, tribulations, tests and temptations. They're all words in the Bible to describe the difficulties of life. But the biblical writers always see our difficulties as ways God desires to test us, refine us, train us, and redeem us. There's there are always like ways that you and I have to show up and 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 like tr- like have a have a test in our Christ likeness. 
a trial in our Christ like there's always something God's doing through it all. This is what the, the biblical writers, how they see every hardship. Let me give you an example. James chapter one. And I'm gonna read you a translate, a Dallas Willard translation of this, of this passage. I think it's really, really good in it. And it shows the, the point here in the text. James chapter one, verses two through four. Regard it as a most joyous occasion when the various kinds of trials hit you. For you know that when your confidence in God is put to practical tests, it results in an ability to stay with things, patience. And when your capacity to stay with things is fully developed, you will be complete and whole, lacking nothing. I mean, the audience of James was enduring struggles that pale in comparison to what you and I go through today. But he has no problem telling this church that when you go through trials, when they hit you and knock you on your rear, consider those occasions joyous because God is at work in those moments to put you to practical tests that will result in your growth and resilience and faith and trust. Now, I know we like to think of God as like a helicopter parent, as a snowplow parent, that like, no, you, you'll never get hurt and I'll always protect you and nothing ever will bad will happen and you will, you'll be in this like bubble. But that's not how good parenting works. You have to let your kid grow up and fail and fall and learn and learn what gravity means and is and all of that stuff. And you keep them as much as you can from horrific things happening. But there is something about life that happens that you have to just prepare your child for life. Now, I know this analogy breaks down somewhat because there's some things that you have gone through. You're like, but why would God allow this? And of course, there's evil that happens in the world that God doesn't just simply allow. But then again, that's a whole different teaching, right? When it comes to trials and struggle and tribulation, for the most part in the world, even evil, God is, 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 is at work in both evil that's happening in the world, meaning he's fighting it, resisting it, causing us to like to fight evil with good. At the same time, God uses and transforms the struggle and the suffering that we go through to bring about our sanctification and how it works and what part take evil takes over and God's will takes over and all of that. And if I, I don't really know. I, I don't, I, I'm not, I don't adhere to like um, meticulous sovereignty of God. Like he makes every single evil thing happen. I, I don't subscribe to that at all. Um, but I do believe that God is at work in every little thing that does happen in this world. God's at work bringing it to an end of our good and his glory. God is at work in all of it. Now, to be honest, right now, I find it hard for those in our community who are in the middle of this racial war that we seem to be fighting, especially our black brothers and sisters who want people to hear their stories and to see things from their point of view, and they want people to know that they are not all one thing. But with the way the world is turning this moment into a civil war, even in the church, it's devastating. And I find it hard to tell you to rejoice. How do you rejoice in a year like this? This is a 
how do I tell you this is a, a test, this is a trial, this is a hardship that God wants to work in you, his sanctification work? I find that hard to tell you, but it's true. It's biblical truth. So I'll say, regard this moment as some sort of joyous occasion. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but joy is a is a is a like a, a supra emotion. It can lay on top of other emotions. So you could be devastated and joyful. You could be angry and joyful even. Joyous means it lays on top, means I have a hope. I have, I have, I have people I'm in this with. I have a God who's 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 with me and in this with me. Regard this moment as a joyous occasion because your confidence and God is being put to a very practical test right now. And the spirit is at work in you and in your life. And for those without a job right now, for those who find themselves with too much work on their hands right now, for those who are exhausted, regard this moment as a joyous occasion because there are invitations, there are things that God is doing in the midst of it. That's the tradition of the biblical writers and how God conspires with our hardships and trials. They always see them as ways that God is bringing us to sanctification or God is bringing glory in us. And we might not see it here, but in the end, it will work out. In the end, meaning when God makes all things new. Another verse, if you need another verse that proves this, Romans 5, rejoice in afflictions. We rejoice in afflictions for we know that afflictions bring the capacity to stay with things or patience to its fullest form. And patience proves that hope was right. And the hope does not let us down for the very best thing happens to us. Love floods our hearts through the presence of the spirit given to us. Another Willard translation of that verse. In Romans, here, what Paul is doing, he's introducing the spirit into this language, right? He's saying, let's rejoice in our afflictions because they have the capacity within us. Afflictions have this, have this, have this way of bringing out the best in us, perseverance and hope in a future. And most important of all, the, the spirit floods us during trials with God's love. And so Paul brings in the, the, the work of the Spirit and it's introduced into this conversation. Here we see the Spirit being an agent that affirms God's love to us in all our trials. He speaks to us, if we would only listen, that our trials are not in vain, that we are sons and daughters and God is at work. So I will say to you, keep stubbornly believing that. Keep stubbornly believing that God is at work, that you know God's character like the Canaanite woman that we talked about last week. Keep believing that. Keep hanging on God's character. I know your character, God. I know what you're like, God. Not only is the spirit there in our trials, pouring out God's love to us, speaking Jesus's words to us, turning us into who we are in Christ through our trials, but the spirit also sits with us in our pain. Romans 8 is an amazing dissertation on the spirit and our life in the spirit. And, and, and Romans 8 is Paul's therefore that he's building up to and is his masterpiece work to the Romans, right? That's why Romans 8 starts with therefore. 
after discussion about life in the spirit versus life in the flesh and how the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in us and gives us life and to walk in the spirit because we're we are children of God after all that after everything Paul says about the spirit he says this this he says this gem in verse 18 he says i consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Do you hear this redemptive language all in the context of life in the spirit? What the spirit does is it doesn't waste a thing we go through. And the present things that we go through, our sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is worked in us and that will be one day revealed in us. We need to hear this today. I I need to hear this today. This is the verse that our aunties and uncles of the faith who are older and wiser than us and who have probably suffered a lot more than us would remind us of. They would say these present sufferings are nothing to be compared to the glory of God that will be revealed in us. But then... Paul, right after that, goes into this whole thing about groaning in the world. You should read it. Read it, the second half of Romans 8. It's really interesting. Paul's like, the world, actually, the earth right now, creation, he says, is groaning. He says, like, like, like labor pains. I remember my wife, when she was in labor pains, the groaning was almost too much to bear. I mean, it's just almost traumatizing. It's just so, so much pain. He says, the earth is like that. The earth is groaning in pain. Why? Because it knows how it was created. Paul says that creation has a memory of like the garden and how God created it. And now it's so messed up that it groans. It groans in anticipation for God to do something. It's a vivid picture. But then he says, not only that, we groan. And this is, I think we groan in like anticipation of redemption to come. We groan because we hate the way that life is turning out. We groan because our world is so messed up. So Paul says that the world groans and we groan. Listen to all the groaning that's going on. There's a lot of groaning. And then he says this. He says, the spirit in us does the same thing, but differently. Look what it says. Look at verse 26, Romans 8. In the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. Anyone else there? You go to prayer, you're like, I don't even know what to pray for. Like I've kind of given up on the world peace thing. I don't really know what else to pray for. We do not know what to pray for. Why? Because we're so weak right now. We're so troubled. We're groaning. At times when you can't even pray, you're just going, oh, ever been so in pain where you can't talk about your pain? All you can do is groan. This is like the picture. That's what the world is. That's where we are. And we don't even know what to pray for because we're groaning. But the spirit himself who lives in us, remember, he lives in us. The spirit himself intercedes. That means he stands before God and pleads our case. He's like, this is what's going on inside of Dave. This is what's going on inside of you. And this is what's going on inside their heart, their soul right now. And he intercedes for us with wordless groans. The spirit of God groans with us. And he sits before God. He's like, this is what's going on. And he just groans. He groans our groans. I mean, this is like the, the ultimate incarnation of the Spirit. This is how, how vibed out the Spirit is with us, how in sync the Spirit is with us, because when we're in pain, the Spirit is too. And the Spirit groans as we groan. See, we are transformed 
by the Spirit, and the Spirit uses our hardships. He tells us to see through them because we will, he's at work bringing us to completion, bringing us to holiness, bringing us to Christ-likeness. He's at work, but not just that. When we're like, I don't really care that you're doing that because I'm so in pain, he sits with us in our pain and he groans in intercession for us. He just brings our groans to God. He brings our pain to God. So what I'd like to do now is I'd like to allow space for the spirit to groan for you. I'm going to I'm going to sit still and I'd love for you right now to in all of your pain and your weakness right now allow the spirit to intercede for you. So if at this point if you want to move to kneeling or just sitting there with your your hands open to God, I'm going to let him meet you with wordless groans. I'm going to let the spirit of God search your heart and bring you to the mind of God right now. So would you open your hands? Would you close your eyes? Holy Spirit, who's alive in us, in our pain, when we, our groans are saying this trial is too much, this year is too much, this is just too, too much. Would you sit in our pain and our groaning and you intercede for us now? And Holy Spirit, I pray you bring us hope. Hope in the power of the resurrection. And Romans 8 says, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is alive in us. You will bring our lives from the death into resurrection. So I'm praying for that. I pray that the, 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 the things that we're going through in our lives, in our marriages, um, in our singleness, um, in, our, in our interaction with friends that live in different parts of the nation, in our world, that you would see, we would see this as a trial, a tribulation, a test that grows us in Christ-like character. Don't waste this really horrible year, God. I know you don't want to. Don't waste it. Use it. Use it, God, in our lives to make us more like Jesus so that we can be salt and light in this world, that we can be partners with you in the renewal, the renewal that you're bringing in the midst of a, just a tremendous, tremendously hard year. In Jesus' name, amen.